what they're doing is to find out if there's bamboo in the paper. Oh. Hi, John Brakey. Good to see you in the national media. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling there's something right. Oh, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Here I am. We'll get to John Brakey in a bit. But uh, from Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ in Cottage Grove on Queso in Eugene on KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. In Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's, AM 950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets for you on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Oh, boy, am I pulling together a lot of stuff uh, (laughs) to try and make sense of what the hell is going on today. Uh, Welcome to the Bradcast. Glad to have you here. And I think we will sort of go, Desi Doyen, from one side of the country to the other today. Okay. Okay. If all goes well, we'll see. I hope all goes well. We'll see. (laughs) Sort of a sunbelt trip from sunny Florida to sunny Arizona to sunny California in our coverage. So I hope you've got plenty of uh, sunscreen on today. (laughs) It also occurred to me while I was working on today's show... Uh, how difficult it actually is to both look forward and back at the same time. Uh, So I kind of, you know, when Obama used to talk about, oh, we want to look forward, not back, Ah. and all of that stuff, it actually is uh, difficult. Uh, In this case, we've got to look back at the dangerous, still ongoing effects of the big lies spread about the 2020 election by our former president. And now these gullible chumps who continue to buy his nonsense. And we, yes, need to look forward to actions that are being taken by the new president to, well, as he says, to build back better and in a a sustainable way so that we can all survive to bicker about phony evidence-free claims of massive voter fraud for many decades to come. (laughs) See how that works? Yes. So let me start to that end in Florida today, actually on Fox News today, believe it or not. We spoke earlier in the week with Florida's legendary 30-year former supervisor of elections, Ion Sancho, about the new voter suppression bill that has been pushed through the GOP-controlled state legislature in the Sunshine State. 
and how, among other things, it threatens elections officials with personal $25,000 fines if they dare to take any measure to help voters vote, even emergency measures that the state legislature has not expressed expressly designed it does not feel that they you know that the the legislature has granted them permission to do if they even you know do anything out of line from this new law they can personally be held accountable for $25,000 that said it's the voter suppression in the bill that limits the use of mail-in voting, restricts the use of drop boxes, deters voters in line, long lines from being given food or water, forces voters to sign up for mail-in ballots every single election cycle if they want to vote by mail. Uh, even after Florida GOP legislators have spent decades expanding vote by mail in the state to make it easier, at least until this past election when, for the first time, more Democrats than Republicans took advantage of that opportunity to conveniently vote by uh, absentee ballot. Thus, the laws had to be changed uh, to put a stop to that, to prevent all those younger voters and African-American voters from conveniently voting. Florida Republicans, by the way, did the same thing after 2008 when more Democrats that year took advantage of early voting options. So Republicans restricted that for future elections. That's how they roll in Florida. But even though Trump won the state in uh, 2020, reportedly by about three percentage points last year, and he had and sang the praises of Florida's voting system as, you know, the best in the nation, including its vote by mail system, which both he and 2024 presidential hopeful Governor Ron DeSantis both took advantage of last year. Despite that, state lawmakers Put the brakes on all of that last week with the Senate passing this bill on uh, Florida's Confederate Memorial Day. As of just course a, they did. <laughs> as a nice touch. And, well, uh, uh, <laughs> today the uh, Florida measure became law with Governor Ron DeSantis making a Fox and Friends appearance to sign the bill. Seriously, he signed this new law on Fox News. This is where the Republican Party now is. DeSantis signed the legislation at the uh, tail end of an interview with the morning Fox program, which was given exclusive access to carry the bill signing while local media, Florida's own local media, was shut out of the ceremony entirely. Election officials in the state, including some Republicans, have vehemently objected to the uh, to this bill, to the tack that the legislature was taking in overhauling the state's widely praised election system. But, yeah, he did it all on Fox News and uh, Florida's push to clamp down on voter access, as listeners to this program know, is, of course, part of a state a nationwide surge in restrictive proposals. So the new law was immediately challenged in court, literally within nine minutes of this bill signing. Good. Mark Elias, uh, the uh, Democratic voting rights attorney, announced he had filed a lawsuit challenging it. Also, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, Legal Defense and Election e Educational Fund, 
announced soon after that, uh, after the signing as well, that they would be filing a federal lawsuit. So, the vote suppression fund continues even as the Democrats' various legislative remedies for them in Congress, that would be the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Bill and the For the People Act, those remain obstructed largely by Republicans in the U.S. Senate, though also by Democrat Joe Manchin, who insists that any election bill passed by Congress needs to be bipartisan. Good luck with that. Uh, that's about as likely to happen, I would say, as Donald Trump admitting that he lost the 2020 election. <laughs> True. Uh, but speaking of that now, we take a sunny trip back to Maricopa County. Yes, that would be Phoenix, Arizona, where the audit theater being run by the right-wing Florida technology firm, which calls itself Cyber Ninjas, continues this week with only a moderate more amount of oversight than when we first reported and warned about what was going on there last week. Happily, that moderately more amount of oversight now is has resulted in, well, both Arizona local media and national news over the past 24 to 48 hours actually reporting on this clown show and a whole bunch of stuff that we had warned about, what, a week or two ago now yeah. already on this yeah. show. Yeah, we're your early warning system. As you like <laughs> to say, our warnings that this uh, so-called audit being run by folks with zero experience in either elections or voting systems is likely unlikely to be finished by the May 14 deadline when they are no longer allowed to be in the Arizona Veterans Memorial Coliseum counting these ballots. Well, now uh, other the rest of the world has noticed that as well. <laughs> and the ballots, which by federal law are supposed to be in the secure custody of election officials, not private companies, for 22 months following every election, that is now a concern that has been uh, brought up by, in this case, federal officials. And yes, the search for bamboo fibers in ballot paper that we told you about last week, that auditors there were examining with microscopes and UV lights because they believed that it would be evidence that the ballots were somehow sent from China or something, because, you know... They put bamboo in everything in China, <laughs> I guess. that's the. Well, that made a bit of a splash on Wednesday night with an out-of-context interview with one of our guests on this topic last week. That would be John Brakey, a longtime election integrity advocate, a longtime Democrat who has been on the inside of this process, whatever it is, since it began about two weeks ago. That's why he was on the show. That's why I've been able to report all of this stuff. And, of course, the biggest concern, at least for me, is that none of this is being done transparently. It shouldn't be that you have to talk to John Brakey or listen to the broadcast to know what the hell is going on, even small pieces of what is going on, because there's really no way to know what the counters are counting each day in this unprecedented audit of 2.1 million ballots paid for by taxpayer dollars. This audit that was set up by the Republicans in the Arizona State Senate in opposition to the Republicans who run the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors and in opposition to the Democratic Secretary of State. None of the tally sheets that are uh, being used to count up votes, none of those are being shared publicly. There's no tracking of how they are being entered into a spreadsheet. 
To the point that when this exercise finally ends, the folks who are running it, the so-called Cyber Ninjas uh, and its CEO, Doug Logan, who has previously asserted that the election was stolen from Donald Trump, though he has no evidence, these folks will be able to basically make any claim about the numbers that they like. And there will be no way, short of publicly counting it all over again, to know who is actually telling the truth. And, of course, by then, we won't even be able to do that because this private company has had complete and total access and control of these ballots without oversight for weeks now under this taxpayer-funded exercise ordered by the state GOP Senate. You know, so even a new count of all of the ballots would no longer be trustworthy because the ballots could have been replaced or lost or stolen or changed. So let's start right there for now. According to one local news uh, affiliate who, unlike another that I'll get to in a minute, is doing a good job of covering this mess. NBC affiliate News 12 reports on this sharply word letter from the Democratic Secretary of State, Katie Hobbs. To uh, one of her predecessors, that would be former Republican Secretary of State Ken Bennett, she sent him a letter to bring the Republican election audit that he is overseeing as the liaison to the GOP Senate into some kind of compliance with state laws and regulations. She says, I'm not sure what compelled you to oversee this audit, but I'd like to assume you took the role with the best of intentions it is those intentions I appeal to now. Either do it right or don't do it at all. So this letter was sent after a, uh, a settlement of a lawsuit that has been ongoing for the past couple of weeks. And now the defendants in this lawsuit, that would be Bennett and uh, the Cyber Ninjas and the Arizona Senate president, Karen Fan. They now have uh, 48 hours to respond to the concerns of the Secretary of State. But Katie Hobbs highlights about 13 concerns that she has uh, about this account where in a state where Joe Biden, by the way, was certified as the winner by a little bit more than 10,000 votes or less than one half of one percent. She has questions about the count and how the counting is done and how these tens of thousands of tally sheets will be added up. Nobody knows. They're not publishing them every night. We have no idea what happens to them after one of the tables gets done tallying them. She said, uh, when asked by my office about the process uh, that will be used to aggregate these tens of thousands of individual tally sheets that will be generated, they received no real explanation. Now, they had someone on the inside, the Secretary of State's office did, only because of the settlement in this lawsuit. That's right. The Secretary of State was being prevented from overseeing what was going on inside this count at the uh, at the Coliseum. But anyway, this is something that I've been warning about for weeks now. And as I reported on Monday, I think it was, after a judge had ordered the Cyber Ninjas to reveal their procedures, their own procedures spell out exactly how they can, at a minimum, add 42,000 votes to the tally or change 42,000, let's say, give Donald Trump 21,000, take away 21,000 from Joe Biden without ever setting off any internal alarms 
inside the Coliseum. Uh, so that's, yeah, that's kind of a big concern. That's kind of a problem, yeah. Uh, she says there's lack of training. She points to the fact that there are uh, a former uh, lawmaker who was on the ballot, who was actually inside doing the counting, and that he is actually one of the presidential electors. So he's actually counting his own election mm. by participating. So the the big thing that, that made a lot of news, of course, was the fact that <laughs> This this interview with John Brakey, who a uh, longtime election integrity advocate. He's he's a friend. He's a longtime colleague of mine. He was featured on this show last week. He was featured in an interview that CBS five Arizona published outrageously, completely out of context on Twitter on Wednesday night with John talking about what he discussed on the show, this uh, search for bamboo fibers in the ballot papers to to prove that this was that China somehow stuffed the ballot box. Now, he's a longtime union Democrat, along with an elections expert who, uh, though I told him I think it's a bad idea, he's been participating in this audit anyway to try and improve the procedures to fight for transparency. He's also refused to sign a non-disclosure agreement, as all of the other observers were ordered to do. (laughs) Incredibly enough, again, it's a uh, taxpayer-funded audit. NDAs were required. John would not sign it. John would not take any money, as the counters are being also paid money. Anyway, on, on Twitter on Wednesday night, a guy named Dennis Welch, the political editor at CBS 5 News and at 3TV in Phoenix. I guess it's a case where there one company owns two separate TV stations. That's what it is. Uh, anyway, uh, Dennis Welsh posted this out of this interview, this this clip, this minute and a half. I'll play it in full here uh, where he says uh, John Brakey, an official helping oversee the audit of the 2020 ele- Arizona election, says auditors are looking for bamboo fibers. Here is the selective clip that Dennis Welch decided to run on Twitter. The other day at the press conference, you were talking about bamboo. What was that about? Well, is that there's accusations that 40,000 ballots were flown in. Arizona? Into Arizona, and it was stuffed into the box, okay? And it came from the southeast part of the world, Asia, okay? And uh, and what they're doing is to find out if there's bamboo in the paper. That camera right there, that they take a picture of the ballot, if you, they can really look at depth and find out, is it a hand-marked paper ballot? Because that, it, it's a 5K camera. You can see the folds in the ballot because 92% of all the ballots here should have been folded because they came in through an envelope, okay? And so they're doing all sorts of testing to prove if it was or wasn't, and that's very important because the only way you can persuade people on changing is having facts, and we're on a mission for facts. And I'm Audit Elections USA, and what we do is not about the right or left. Audit is an acronym. It stands for Americans United for Democracy, Integrity, and Transparency in Elections. We've been around 17 years. Uh, We work all over the country for the last five years. I'm in litigation in Florida. Uh, I've sued in Alabama. I negotiated in Virginia. I sued in Ohio. And I've been in 18 states. Just working elections. And I all started because of the Bernie Sanders election in 2016 with Hillary Clinton. I'm the guy who sued the whole state. So uh, this was run, this was picked up widely on Twitter by a whole bunch of people, including Keith Olbermann, 
who uh, retweeted it and added this old stupid racist moronic mother. I can't say it. John Brakey mentioned his name, who refers to the southeast part of the world needs to be institutionalized in the entire crowd of Trump QAnon white trailer park trash with him. I'm short on time, so I'm going to save my words that I might say in response here to Keith Olbermann. But if he bothered to look, there was a second part to this video that should have been included with the first part. Dennis Welch, again, published this uh, about 20 minutes later. I have no idea why he didn't include the very next sentence that John Brakey had to say here, explaining that, no, he doesn't believe any of it. What does the bamboo, why, why do you check for because bamboo? Because they use bamboo in their paper processing. Who's they? Uh, people in Southeast Asia. So that you feel like... That's 40, what they say. 40,000 ballots have been... Yeah, I don't believe any of that. Okay. I'm just saying that is part of the mystery that we want to ungaslight people about, and this okay. is a way to do this it. This is part of what you're looking at. For. I'm not. They are. I'm here as an observer in a professional in elections for the last 17 years. Now, how hard was it to include those 38 seconds? It would have been nice. That context yeah. is crucial. You think? The fact that he doesn't believe any of it? Well, they didn't run that. They ran it separately. Guys like Oberman didn't bother to see it, even though it has now been pointed out to him. He has still left this attack on John Brakey up there, which I think is outrageous, which is dangerous to John. I've got certain problems with John uh, participating in this, as I said. But, boy, yeah, context matters. I'm glad that people know that they're doing this search for bamboo fibers that we told you about about two weeks ago. But to uh, cite John Brakey, to target John Brakey, as guys like Oberman did, uh, without the full context, is kind of appalling. So I just wanted to let you know that was going on uh, because Brakey has been now quoted all over the place uh, on this. Uh, most of the places I've seen him quoted have gotten it right. Washington Post cited him, noting that he doesn't believe any of it. But a whole bunch of people on the Internet uh, did not notice that part, thanks to some really lazy people who should know better. And really, the person to blame here is Dennis Welch, the political editor at CBS 5 News, who also has not taken it down and replaced the, the two clips with one clip with the full context. Anyway. Yes, that is making me crazy. I'm sorry, but I had to uh, at least catch you up a little bit with what is going on there and this outrageous, uh, well, what has become an attack on John Brakey for saying this is what they are doing, as he did when he came on the show. No, I don't believe it, but you should know what they're doing, which is why he told them, which is why he told us. Which is why he's there. <sighs> and why this is getting insaner and saner by the minute. But I'm glad at least that the rest of the non-broadcast media is finally beginning to notice this uh, clown show, this audit theater happening in Maricopa. All right. So for now, for today, that's going to have to conclude our looking back segment because we got a guest standing by for our looking forward segment as we continue our sunbelt trip out here to sunny California, as states like ours, at least, are actually trying to save the world by cutting greenhouse gas emissions so we can continue to fight 
about evidence-free claims of voter fraud and bamboo fibers for many, many decades to come. On that front, at least, uh, we may have some very good news when it comes to California's move to clean and renewable energy. And I can't believe we have to cover all of this at the same time, but that's what we're doing. Anyway, Sammy Roth, energy reporter at L.A. Times, is on deck for that. And I think it'll be brighter but I'm not entirely sure. We'll find out. That's all ahead on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. You're listening to the Bradcast. We are 100% listener supported. Thanks to listeners like you who drop by bradblog.com slash donate. California, here we come. Right back where we started from. California. Welcome back. It's the uh, schizophrenic, if uh, sunny road trip across the country known as the Bradcast today. Welcome back to it. I'm Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. In advance of his two-day virtual climate summit with more than 40 world leaders on Earth Day about two weeks ago, President Biden set new greenhouse gas emissions targets for the U.S. under the United Nations Paris Climate Agreement, which he thankfully has reentered the United States back into, uh, pledging he did to uh, cut U.S. emissions in half in half by 2030. That's not even a decade away at this point. For those of you who have not checked your calendars lately. And perhaps even more dauntingly, certainly more ambitiously, vowing to reach net zero carbon emissions economy wide for the entire nation by 2050. That goal nearly doubles previous pledges for emissions cuts set by the Obama administration. During the landmark Zoom conference on Earth Day with world leaders, Biden explained his American jobs plan and uh, the proposal to create millions of jobs across the country by investing $2 trillion to upgrade U.S. infrastructure, transition to clean energy, modernize the electric grid, build a national electric vehicle charging network and boost innovation. He explained some of his reasonings here by maintaining those investments. And putting these people to work, the United States sets out on the road to cut greenhouse gases in half, in half by the end of this decade. That's where we're headed as a nation. And that's what we can do if we take action to build an economy that's not only more prosperous, but healthier, fairer, and cleaner for the entire planet. You know, these steps will set America on a path of net zero emissions economy by no later than 2050. Well, I hope so. Uh, of course, as we have learned since Biden has taken office when it comes to his promises on things like covid vaccines, for example, he tends to set goals that he knows in advance can definitely be met. Cutting climate war warming emissions by half in less than 10 years may sound daunting, but in some respects, the nation's largest state Right here in California, well, we are dang near already there, according to L.A. Times energy reporter Sammy Roth in his Boiling Point newsletter last week, just one week after Biden announced his new ambitious goals. Something remarkable happened over the weekend, Roth declared last week. California hit 95% renewable energy. 95% renewables. 
For all the time we spend talking about how to reach 100% clean power, Roth wrote, it sometimes seems like a faraway proposition, whether the time frame is California's own 2045 target or President Biden's more aggressive 2035 goal. But on Saturday, just before 2.30 p.m., one of the world's largest economies came within a stone's throw of getting there. Well, that was easy. Roth notes several caveats, however. For one thing, Saturday's 94.5% figure, a record as confirmed by the California Independent System Operator, was fleeting. It lasted just four seconds. Also, it was specific to the state's main power grid, which covers only four-fifths of California, but doesn't include Los Angeles or Sacramento and several other regions which generate their own power independently. It also came at a time of year defined by abundant sunshine, relatively cool weather, meaning it's easier for renewable power to do the job traditionally done by fossil fuels. And he notes fossil fuels actually were doing part of the job more than the 94.5% figure might actually suggest. California was producing enough clean power to supply nearly 95% of in-state needs, but it was also burning a bunch of natural gas, and exporting electricity to its western neighbors. It's impossible to say how much of the Golden State's own supply was coming from renewables. That said, what happened on that Saturday is definitely a big deal, Roth argues. So what of that, and it is a big deal, but what of that other fifth of California, mainly Los Angeles, the most populous and sprawling metropolitan area in the nation with some 10 million people in L.A. County alone. On that, Roth had a few words just one week earlier at The Times, reporting Los Angeles is one of the last places in California still burning coal for electricity. But, he notes, if all goes according to plan, it could become one of the country's first major cities to nearly eliminate all fossil fuels from its power supply. In a first-of-its-kind study commissioned by the city and released uh, in late March, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory concluded L.A. is capable of achieving 98% clean energy within the next decade, meeting one of President Biden's most ambitious climate goals. And it can do so without causing blackouts, that's good, or disrupt disrupting the economy, even better, uh, this, according to the Federal Research Lab, and that, of course, undercuts two of the most common arguments used by opponents of climate action. The path forward, writes Roth, for the next decade is clear. The Federal Laboratory found that we need to build solar farms, wind turbines and batteries as fast as possible. We need to get solar panels on rooftops, electric cars in garages and electric heat pumps in homes and invest in energy efficiency and so-called demand response programs that actually pay people to use electricity during times of day when solar and wind are, are plentiful. Crucially, he notes, all the paths to 100% clean energy studied by NREL would be capable of keeping the lights on every hour of the year. According to the researchers, even on the hottest summer and coldest winter days, even when the sun does not shine, 
and the wind does not blow for days at a time. And even when a wildfire takes down a major transmission line, that is, of course, a key point, he notes, after recent weather extremes that highlighted the importance of a reliable power grid, including uh, brief rolling blackouts we had here in California during a heat wave last year. And, of course, the deadly multi-day outages in Texas during February's cold snap or as L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti put it, quote, we can keep our medical equipment on. We can keep our refrigerators working. We can keep the city going even in the face of more extreme weathers. The mayor told Roth, quote, the top scientists in the world have taken this from dreamland to reality. There are hundreds of pathways that could take us to 100 percent renewable. It no longer should be a question of if, but when and how. Of course, the how, if you watch Fox News, includes Joe Biden banning hamburgers for all of America. Or the GOP propaganda outlet apparently uh, moving from dreamland to fantasy land of late. But back here, yes, in reality land, all of this from Roth's reporting sounds, well, deceptively simple. That's decidedly not, however, what we hear from fossil-fueled uh, right-wingers, which who describe Biden's plan as a dystopian, job-crushing, economy-killing nightmare that will set us back to the Stone Age. Unfortunately... That's the crap that gets the headlines versus the realities like the ones apparently taking shape in the Golden State. But if that's the case, if it's all this easy, why all the sturm and drang beyond the predictable death throes from a fossil fuel industry that I, I think correctly at this point sees its days numbered? Let's take a quick break here and we will be joined by Mr. Optimism himself. That would be Sammy Roth of the L.A. Times. That is straight ahead to discuss all of this and more right here on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. That's sunny. Uh, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Yes, just a week or so after California hit its 95% renewable energy used across the state. Yes, it was on a Saturday. Yes, it was a sunny, mild day. And no, it didn't include Los Angeles. But 95% renewable energy for a state the size of California that's pretty good. Um, and we are nowhere near Joe Biden's, what, uh, 2030 deadline to to cut our emissions in half. So California is on its way, but it didn't include Los Angeles. What about Los Angeles? Well, now Los Angeles has a roadmap, a landmark roadmap put together by a federal lab, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, 
explaining how L.A. can also get to 100% renewable energy. And, oh, it'll be a breeze, right? Well, maybe not. Uh, as uh, Sammy Roth has been reporting at L.A. Times, he joins us now, as I call him, Mr. Optimism. Sammy Roth is an energy reporter at the L.A. Times, where he focuses on energy and the environment and apparently rosy scenarios in California and the western U.S. Welcome to the broadcast, Sammy Roth. Hey, Brad. I'm happy to be here. G glad to have you. As noted, there are those are some pretty rosy scenarios you're painting, and I know there are some not pretty elements that you uh, describe as well in all of this, but it seems to me that if Los Angeles can get where we need to be, I'm not sure why any other major city in the nation wouldn't be able to as well. We'll talk about that in a moment, though. Uh, as noted, the National Renewable Energy Lab uh, report finds we can get to 98% clean energy within the next decade. So uh, how, did they, how did they study this? What does their roadmap look like exactly? And is it really achievable both, I guess, physically and politically at this point? Because those two uh, issues seem to go hand in hand these days. Yeah, well, those are two good questions. I mean, the way they, they looked at this was they have a, a supercomputer out at their, uh, their headquarters in Golden, Colorado, and they... Um, you know, they ran, uh, I think, more than 100 million simulations was the number they gave me over, like, three or four years. And they, I mean, they looked at all sorts of things. They were looking at, you know, what the weather might look like as the climate changes and how much electricity are people going to use. And if they, you know, if there are more electric cars, are they going to use more electricity and more electric heat pumps in homes? And how many people are going to put solar panels on? And, I mean, they looked at lots and lots of factors and, and mapped it out, you know, sort of hour by hour over mm. the course of the year. And, um, ultimately came to the conclusion that there there is the combination of stuff out there if you're, you know, you've got to do a lot of solar and, and wind and batteries, as mm -hmm. you mentioned, but then you've got to do other stuff that can generate clean energy at other times of day. They've got a, a whole bunch of geothermal power in there, and they've got uh, hydrogen, renewable hydrogen. So it's, you know, it, it's more different kinds of stuff than we have right now that we're going to need. Um, but they found, yeah, that it's it's ultimately feasible um, but, you know, on the question of, of whether there's a, a difference between this being possible and, and this being something that, um, you know, we're actually going to be able to accomplish, I mean, I think that is the big question. I mm -hmm. mean, you know, you talk about rosy, rosy scenarios mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, optimism, and um, there, there's no question that it's, it's going to be, you know, really, really challenging, even if, even if the tools are there technically to do it. Um, when you look at how fast this stuff's going to need to be built and all of the conflicts that could come with that, mm -hmm. I, I mean, already you try to build a solar and wind farm out on the landscape in, you know, the Mojave Desert mm -hmm. or, um, you know, other parts of the West. I mean, these, these, these create land use disputes. I mean, people don't like looking at them in some cases. There are issues with environmental, you know, degradation. I mean, it's, it's not like, you know, a solar or a wind farm is, is as bad as a coal plant, but these are still things that are in, in some cases grading over landscapes and taking up habitat, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that, that's an issue. Uh, obviously, it's got to be paid for, um, even if it's something ultimately that's not going to, you know, be a significant disruptor to the L.A. economy, which uh, is what the finding of the NREL study is here. Um, you're still going to have to think about what is the impact that it's going to have on, on electricity rates, particularly for those who, you know, already have the most trouble paying their bills, mm -hmm. which is a lot of folks in a city like Los Angeles. Um, and and then of course you get into the politics as well and the you know the opposition that's uh, you know that's ultimately going to continue to exist from uh, you know folks in the oil and gas industry and from labor that works in those industries as well. 
So it, it, it's not going to be easy, and I, you know, I, I don't, you know, want my, my reporting to be looked at as, oh, well, this is, you know, so obvious and easy that, uh, you know, that we don't have to worry about it anymore. Uh, definitely <laughs> still worth, <laughs> still worth worrying about it. So, all right, well, I'll, I'll, I'll not call you uh, Mr. Rosie Scenario too often, uh, Sammy Roth. To, uh, to hear Just Joe, once or twice would be okay. Okay, good. Uh, to hear uh, Joe Biden and and other advocates talk about it, you know, nationally, while this stuff. Uh, might be expensive, uh, and you you talked about that as well. That it you know needs to be paid for on the at least on the local level. You know, as far as the initial government layout goes, uh, on the federal level, certainly uh, it's expensive. But he argues that it more than pays for itself over time, at least on that national level, in both you know job creation, lower health costs, fewer costly natural disasters, etc. Do those same principles still work on smaller scales, as far as both cost and job creation, uh, for example, that helps? pay for these for these investments according to the NREL study. Yeah, I think generally they do. I mean, when you look at the the health impacts of um of, of burning fossil fuels and uh you know, industrial activities that are are creating not only carbon dioxide and putting that into the atmosphere but also these localized pollutants um you know, it gets into kind of weird territory when you're putting, you know, dollar value assignments on, you know, what it means for a thousand more people to die of heart attacks mm-hmm. or a hundred thousand more people to have asthma. I mean, mm-hmm. th- that that gets very subjective. But I, I I haven't really seen any research that's attempted to, you know, quantify the the benefits for local air quality, the air people breathe, um, you know, of, of doing these kinds of steps to mm-hmm. to phase out um, combustion in in favor of renewables and and not seen the conclusion reached that, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's worth it when you take into account the, the health alone. I mean, not to mention the climate change impact. I mean, mm-hmm. so we're talking about people's health and we're talking about, uh, you know, removing emissions that are going to then result in things like not as much sea level rise, heat waves that aren't quite as bad, mm-hmm. uh, you know, droughts that aren't as devastating, wildfires that aren't as devastating. When, when you add that stuff together, I mean, it, it's not the way traditional, you know, economics work and the you know, the direct cost and benefits may not be parceled out in that way, but in, in the big picture, it's uh, it's easy to understand where that argument comes from, that these things pay for themselves. And and the uh, the argument about, you know, paying for themselves in jobs and creating new jobs, do we see that also on the, on the smaller scale in L.A., that, you know, we would create essentially more jobs than we would end up losing? And I think necessarily we will end up losing jobs in the... Uh, fossil fuel industry and so forth, but does that uh, balance out? Uh, does that even out, or does that you know even uh, more jobs uh, created moving to renewables? Yeah, the jobs question is really interesting. Um, I mean, the, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory study uh, did, did not do an in-depth analysis of you know exact number of jobs created versus uh, you know versus eliminated other other than to find you know the, the big picture finding that it, it's not going to make you know like a significant difference in the bottom line of, mm-hmm. of employment or economic output in the city of Los Angeles. Um, but, it, you know, it, it gets it gets tricky because when you when you have, you know, Biden and leaders in California talking about all the, you know, the good paying jobs created building renewable energy facilities, that, that's true. I mean, those, those jobs are real. At the same time, um, they're, they're frequently, you know, very often they don't pay as well as working in fossil fuels. Um, mm. And, and in fact, you've had the—I mean, not always, but but sometimes—and and you've had the uh, the union of workers, uh, the local IBEW chapter that uh, you know that works at, at LADWP here in Los Angeles, the you know the city utility, 
they actually got very, very unhappy when the mayor decided a couple of years ago to shut down these these three gas plants uh, along the coast here um, mm. that you know these these workers work at. And in fact, they were they were so unhappy about it that they ran uh, television advertisements going really hard after the mayor. Um, and also, they at least briefly held up the approval of a uh, this, this really uh, pretty incredible record cheap uh, solar contract that LADWP mm. had, kind of as a um, you know just because uh, they were they were venting their frustration, mm-hmm. which was was understandable. But they at least briefly stopped uh, stopped the approval of this this solar contract to try to you know give some leverage themselves. So I mean, this is this is something that's uh, you know that's that's really going to need to be figured out. I mean, you look at, at Sacramento and the legislature in California, where labor is uh, you know one of the most powerful, maybe even the most influential group there. Um, and uh, you know, labor so much of labor has been wrapped up in in oil and gas extraction in California for a while that, mm-hmm. that even when you have other segments of of uh, you know organized unions that know, aren't part of oil and gas. They're, mm-hmm. they're all kind of allied together. They're, you know, unhappy about this plan from Newsom to, to stop uh, allowing fracking permits. They're very unhappy about the idea of phasing out oil production uh, by 2045, which is which is the governor's latest thing. Mm-hmm. So even if even if you do have these new renewable energy jobs being created, it, it's very often not an exact, you know, one-to-one translation to the people who are going to be losing mm-hmm. their jobs. And uh, as a result of that, the, the politics are, are still very complicated. Not that there aren't other, you know, labor groups out there that are super gung-ho about uh, this transition, but it's, it's definitely not uniform. Another uh, contentious-related matter here, uh, both in, in Los Angeles and across the country, is the use of uh, of natural gas and, of course, the fracking that goes with it. Does the uh, plan uh, presented by NREL uh, for Los Angeles rely on natural gas for part of our energy mix, or is that something that is taken completely out of, uh, does that get phased out as well through this uh, through this uh, plan? So they, they look at a couple of different options. I mean, the most sort of aggressive and ambitious uh, scenario that they, they look at and they say, yes, we can do this, would involve, uh, you know, one, 100% clean energy by 2035, 10 years ahead of what's currently mandated by mm-hmm. the state. Um, and also, you know, phase out gas and, and not use gas at all and then do it all with, with you know, stuff that you're, um, you know, mm-hmm. not, not combusting, except for hydrogen, I guess, you're still combusting. But, yeah, so they found that that's possible. Um, they also looked at scenarios where, you know, one, we, we you know, take, take our time a little bit more and, and don't do it until 2045, and two, continue to burn some gas. And I think under their, one of their 2045 scenarios, we're still getting, like, 10% of our electricity in the city from gas, and you know, you might ask, well, how is that possible if the the mandate from the state of California is 100% renewable energy? Mm-hmm. Um, and the answer to that is complicated, having to do with <laughs> conflicting interpretations of that law, which are a matter of, of dispute. But this is definitely, I mean, one of the big questions, not just in, in Los Angeles, and natural, uh, but nationally. I mean, uh, we've seen this big decline of coal over the last, um, you know, five, ten years. Uh-huh. Um, and, and a big reason for that has been not only cheap renewables uh, coming into the picture, but also cheap natural gas displacing coal. And you have utilities all over the country that are still making plans to, to build gas plants. And, mm-hmm. I mean, in fact, Los Angeles, uh, I mean, you mentioned at the top, our, our largest source of electricity is still this coal plant in Utah. Um, and, and L.A. is actually planning to build a gas plant on that site in Utah to replace it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's a... It's a tricky thing because originally the plan was just we're going to build gas and burn gas for however many decades that works, and that uh, came under uh, fire, understandably, a couple of years ago. And then they they kind of reversed course and said, okay, we're still going to build the gas plant, but over time we're going to phase out the burning of gas and start burning hydrogen there Mm -hmm. instead and make it this, you know, amazing, you know, sort of uh, not, I mean, it's a 
big commercial project, but this kind of first of its kind, uh, you know, hydrogen burning power plant. Yet to be seen if that's going to work the way they want it to. Um, but but it, it is part of this conversation about how do you have something that you know you can turn on and off when you need it when there's not sun and not wind, and that's mm-hmm. the role that gas is serving in California right now, and ultimately a role that uh, you know something else is going to need to serve if it's not gas. One of the items that I know you spoke to the mayor about in your uh, in your recent report was on the electrification of buildings. We've been uh, covering a bit of that. On our, uh, on our own Green News report in recent weeks, as there has been a real effort by the fossil fuel industry to get states to bar cities from uh, setting building codes that would require renewable energy and ban the use of natural gas in, in new buildings, for instance, uh, which, by the way, sort of puts the lie to the years of pretend wingnut claims that small local governments know what's best for their residents, but don't get me started. Setting that aside, is the industry similarly uh, uh, preventing Los Angeles uh, or even California from taking measures to, you know, require electrification of old buildings and uh, to, to, to bar the use of, of gas in new buildings? Are we seeing that from the that sort of pressure even in uh, California government as well? Yeah, it, it's definitely a live issue here. I mean, there, California has been the epicenter of, of this debate. I mean, there are more than 40 cities here. I think uh, I think I saw last count, it's up to like 43 or 44 city and county governments that have either outright banned gas in new buildings or, you know, strongly encouraged in their building codes to have, you know, electric heating and, and cooking and appliances uh, rather than rather than gas and, and new stuff getting built. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the state uh, the state agency in charge of this, the California Energy Commission, is working on its next set of... Um, you know, standards, energy efficiency standards for, for new buildings, which will take effect in 2023. And they they have told me that they're they're not planning to require, you know, to ban gas in buildings, at least in this update. They think they'll, mm. uh, you know, it's a pretty good chance they'll do it three years after that in, in 2026. But, I mean, definitely as they, you know, uh, they're, they're getting pushback from the gas industry about that. And, uh, you know, in terms of their activists who absolutely want them to do it now and think that it's inexcusable not to. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of Los Angeles, uh, yeah, so I actually did a did a survey of the city council a couple of months ago where I, um, you know, asked, you know, all 15 members of the city council, basically, because, uh, I mean, action has not been taken up on this in L.A. There has not been, a, you know, an effort to get this passed uh, locally. So I asked, I asked each of them, how would you feel about, uh, you know, uh, what's your position on a, an ordinance that would ban gas in new buildings or mm-hmm. do something to that effect? Um, four of them said they would support it, so four out of 15. Wow. Um, only only yeah, four mean, out of 15 on the L.A. That's, City that's Council. Right. Wow. And I got, I got a bunch of non-answers from the other ones. Um, nobody said outright that they would be against it. Uh-huh. Um, so I think there was a bit of a, a hesitancy to wade too deep into it as yet. Um you know, Garcetti and, and the mayor's office, they've, they've talked a lot about wanting to transition to zero-emission buildings. They know that's going to, you know, need to be a part of uh, a part of getting the greenhouse gas emissions down for the city. And, in fact, that, that NREL study um, pretty much assumes that by 2045 that, that almost all, you know, all buildings in, in L.A. are going to be running on electricity rather than gas. But that is that is not something that the, the city has committed mm-hmm. to in a significant way yet. I, I mean, when I've asked the mayor's office about this, the answer has been, well, we, you know, we think, you know, going all electric is, is you know, one of the pathways that's going to get us there. But, um, you know, potentially there could be other pathways. Mm. Some of the stuff that the gas industry has talked about, you know, hydrogen or renewable gas or maybe a geothermal 
heat uh, in some situations. Um, so there, there are potentially other options, um, and L.A. has not exactly committed to what it's going to be doing yet. You know, as I was uh, prepping today, Sammy Roth, and sort of plowing through some of the latest uh, figures and the plans in California and L.A. and and your, uh, yes, yeah, sort of optimistic take on our pathway, you know, one of the, you know, first thing that pops up for me, I know there's a lot to figure out, as you've been uh, talking about, but in, in another way, we have already gone a far way, certainly when we're at the point where, you know, even if it's for four seconds on a, a mild, sunny Saturday, we, we're, you know, the entire state of California is up to 95 percent renewables. Well, not the entire state, because that doesn't include L.A. But, you know, it, it, what's that? Oh, go, go ahead. I just said most of the state. Most of the state. Right. And, uh, you know, if if it if it. <laughs> You know, I'm, I'm sort of looking at this and thinking, well, you know, we are moving forward. There's going to be bumps in the road, but we've we've made a lot of progress really in just the past, I don't know, five, ten years. And I'm wondering, well, if it can be done in California, it seems like it can be done in the rest of the nation. Similarly, if it can be done in Los Angeles, you know, I'm wondering what unique challenges do California and Los Angeles face that other states and cities do not, and conversely, you know, what other major challenges do do other major cities face that L.A. does not? For example, I suspect it's as easy or easier to get energy from the sun here as it is anywhere, while Seattle and its months of rainy days all winter long may not be able to take advantage of that. But is there anything particularly different about California or L.A. from any other major state or city that presents a challenge that they cannot meet or that we, you know, cannot meet, but that they can, if that question makes sense. I'm, 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 it's just, I'm looking at this, it's like, this seems doable. Why hasn't every other state and every other city said, yeah, we think it's doable here as well? Well, I mean, I, I think you're generally right um, with the idea that, uh, you know, if this is something that Los Angeles and California can prove out, that others, you know, if, if they want to, should be able to come along uh, over time. I mean, one, you know, to get at the last thing you said about why haven't others committed to this, I mean, it's, it's still something that, that the state and the city are kind of at the bleeding edge of. I mean, this, this study by NREL, this, you know, it was a first of its kind. Nobody had ever done an analysis like this before. And mm. I think it's, un, you know, understandable pre this study and even understandable post this study that people are going to be, you know, worried about making sure that we really can keep the lights on at all times. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the more the more we have those moments like that, you know, 95% renewables that we had a couple of weeks ago, the more I think people are going to look at us and, and see, oh, yeah, maybe this, this is really doable. And, and one, one thing to note about that is even though it only lasted four seconds, I mean, for most of that afternoon, we were above 90% renewables, mm-hmm. um, you know, in, in the States. So right, right. You know, it was, it was not, it was, you know, it was that instantaneous record mm-hmm. that was part of a, a larger trend there. Um, in terms of challenges that that we have that others don't, um, you know, one that comes to mind is, uh, is is transmission lines and wildfires. So we've had this issue in California mm-hmm. of our, you know, our, our power lines igniting mm-hmm. some of the worst wildfires, and also sometimes you know getting sort of taken down by these these fiery windstorms and then causing people's lights to go off or mm-hmm. shutting lights off preemptively to stop the fires. So that that's definitely a challenge if we're going to be you know running more of the state on the electric grid than we used to, and something that is not totally unique to California, but but relatively unique to, you know, our aging and uh, misshapen grid and, and some of the other Western states that have similar issues. So that that might not be quite as bad elsewhere, a problem mm-hmm. to work through. 
Um, I think you got it right that one reason it's you know potentially easier for us is we've got all the sunshine here in the southwest. Um, on the other hand, you've got other parts of the country that have really amazing wind. I mean, mm-hmm. The best wind in the country is you know Wyoming and the Great Plains um, mm-hmm. and some other spots in mm-hmm. Mexico as well. So that's you know that's something. I mean that that's why in states like Texas and Iowa, which are not exactly you know champions of renewable energy policy, you still have really high amounts of of, of wind on the power grid just because it's you know so cheap there and economically it's made no sense for them not to take advantage of that. Um, so yeah, I mean there, there there are some differences here and there, but but generally I think your 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 reading of this is right. And I mean clearly what California and Los Angeles are trying to do is you know show the rest of the country that it's it's sort of safe and and positive to get on yeah. board with this. And um, I, I think you're seeing more of that happen. I mean in just the you know three years now since California has you know passed its 100 percent renewable energy law, you've had a something like a dozen other states that have either passed laws or put you know, regulations mm-hmm. or, you know, governors in place targeting that. And, and that was something that was not, you know, happening hardly at all before California did it, I, I think, with the exception of, uh, of, of Hawaii a couple of years earlier. So it, it's it's starting to have an impact elsewhere what's happening here, whether it's fast enough to deal with the climate calamity is still to be seen. Still to be seen, yeah. But it is one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you because, there's, you know, there's so much, it, it feels like so much of it is, so much of the holdup is political, largely, and really political only, that, you know, if we just look at what is actually doable, this seems doable. But you know, we don't have it. We you know we have more conversations about the 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 political and the you know Biden banning burgers and all of that nonsense instead of what needs to be done. Yeah, it's not going to be uh, easy. It's not going to be perfect, but it does seem uh, completely doable. And I wish we had more conversations like this. Sammy Roth is a uh, Los Angeles Times energy reporter. He's also uh, author of their uh, Boiling Point newsletter, which you can sign up for at latimes.com slash boiling point. Lots of really good information in it. And of course, you can find him on the Twitters at Sammy underscore Roth. Really appreciates joining us today, Sammy, and uh, hope you m- won't mind coming back in the near future. Thanks, Brad. This this is great, and uh, thanks for plugging the newsletter, and I'll uh, be happy to be back anytime. Thank you, sir. Okay, we have got to get out. My <laughs> yes. thanks to our producer, Desi Doyne, all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And you will find me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Brad Blog. I hope to see you there. Until we see you here next time, I hope you have survived today's whiplash. And if so, we'll see you soon. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.